Explore the history, relationships, expertise, and data that go into ensuring Stein growers get maximum yield potential. This is the Stein Seedcast. Here's your host, David Thompson. Hello, and welcome to the Stein Seedcast. I'm your host, David Thompson, National Marketing and Sales Director for Stein Seed Company. We've got another great episode lined up with special guests, expert insights, and discussion on everything you need to know about maximizing yield potential. On today's episode, our special guest is Stein National Corn Product Manager, Brian Hartman. Welcome to the show, Brian. Well, thanks, David. So as our National Corn Product Manager, Brian works closely with the corn research team to monitor new corn hybrids as they come through the breeding program. His experience with our portfolio allows him to educate our sales team on new hybrids that are available for our grower customers. He also works closely with our Stein agronomists to develop product recommendations and agronomic information to help make sure that our corn is placed in the right environments to maximize yield. Today, Brian's going to chat with us about Stein's corn product selection, portfolio, and our genetics. So let's get started. Well, Brian, I've known you for a number of years, but uh, for listeners who may not have met you, tell us about your background. I grew up in Iowa here and uh, actually lived in the Des Moines area for eight years, working for a large retail organization here in central Iowa, and then had the opportunity to move to St. Louis. Uh, My wife had graduated through college and had a job opportunity, and that was my opportunity to move on. And um, I got introduced to Stein Seed Company and met with Myron and a few others, and it seemed like an opportunity that I couldn't pass up. And uh, originally from uh, northwest corner of the state of Iowa, right? Ida Grove, Iowa. Ida Grove. Home of Shorelander Boat Trailers and Gomeco Paving Equipment. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Fantastic. So, grew up here in Iowa, in uh, agri-retail, and then kind of found Stein Sea Company, I think, as we were expanding the agronomy program. Is that right? That is correct. In 2006, met with Myron, and, you know, he was expanding that agronomy department, and I came on as a regional sales agronomist. You know, when, when I came to Stein in 2006, we had uh, four regions. We had 10 you know, regional sales agronomist. So that's a far cry from where we're at today, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, absolutely. So thinking back to that, those times, what was uh, what was the thought process? What made you think, hey, I think this is, this is something that's going to be interesting for me to get involved in? Well, I knew living in Iowa here, you know, familiar with the Stein Seed Company brand. And then I knew a couple of the sales rep. Uh, I remember fresh out of college, a, you know, a sales rep by the name of Doug Brower, you know, kind of a legend, you know, we just celebrated his, what, 40th year with us. Yep. You know, he was my rep. And, you know, I always thought Doug was intriguing. He did things a little bit differently than others, as we all know. And that's what kind of intrigued me about the company and, and wanted to learn more about it. And, you know, to be real with you, you know, when I came on as a regional sales agronomist moving to St. Louis, I thought I was going to live there for a year and then move on. And I thought Stein would give me the opportunity to grow with the company and move uh, as we as we so wished. But uh, 17 years later, I'm still in <laughs> the same house in, in uh, De Pere, Missouri. <laughs> life, ha- life has its way, doesn't it? It sure does. <laughs> so you start out in the agronomy program and worked your way through that from a kind of a regional position to kind of heading up part of that program, right? So how many years were you in the agronomy side? I was in RSA for about, uh, gosh, a short six months. And then Myron met uh, with me. First meeting I've ever been late to in my life and got stuck in traffic, not acclimated to to the traffic yet and showed up five minutes late. Um, and he's like, hey, I've got to talk to you about something. I'm like, oh, my word, here we go. 
so he just said, hey, we want to expand this. We want to we want to be more service oriented as a company. And so we wanted to break the agronomy division into two. And I took on the Eastern director of agronomy. At that time, we hired some more agronomists and really wanted to focus on the service uh, end of the, the equation with our growers. And like you alluded to in the last 20, almost 25 years, that's been one of the biggest things that I think has helped with our customer service experience going from I can remember the first two agronomists that we hired to eventually, like you said, four and then, you know, uh, rapidly expanding until we have such a great group of individuals today. Of course, now, you know, 38 regions, uh, 39 now. Mm -hmm. Uh, So just continue to grow over the last 25 years at an astronomical rate. (laughs) So it's been exciting. And of course, you were always plugged in on the corn side of of the equation, even from an agronomic perspective. But at, at a point, I think you had gotten more deeply involved in some of that decision-making process. Tell us about, you know, that transition from just maybe straight-up agronomy to starting to work more closely with people like Harry or, or Warren or, or John Henschen in those yeah, days. that's the so, name that's been around. Yeah. Yeah. So when I, when I took on the Eastern Director of Agronomy role, you know, in charge of plots and, you know, in addition to the 10, 10 agronomists, and that was the responsibility of the agronomy team at that time was just to put in plots and take notes. You know, one of the things that we always like to do is not only look at our own material, but look at competitive material. And then just not any competitive material. It's, you know, what is doing well from other other companies and, you know, how do we match up? And that kind of took off uh, working with John on that. And then, you know, as time went on, uh, you know, our, our direction changed a little bit and I took on the entire agronomy division for the company, uh, which was a which was a nice undertaking for us. And then John had passed and that whole thing kind of rolled under uh, onto my desk, and uh, we just kind of ran with it from there. These days, in your role as a corn product management person, talk about who all that involves. Who do you work with most closely on these decisions when we're trying to decide on products and what's going to advance? It's a pretty complex, uh, yet simple, uh, if that makes any sense. Obviously, you have to work close with the research department, and you know my main contact there is is Warren, of course. But then you have to work on the marketing side, and you know, you can have the greatest product in the world, but your marketing team's got to be behind it and has to understand it in order to sell it. So, you know, to, to come up with a portfolio, it really starts with reaching out to our, our 39 regions that we have and saying, all right, what do we need? What maturities and what traits? And then you have to start putting that puzzle together as to try to meet the demands of the growers and, the, and our sales reps. Yeah, and it would appear to me anyway, that's probably one of the bigger parts of the complexity of that is on the soybean side, we have a lot of soybean products, obviously, but fewer traits. Mm -hmm. When you look at corn, the idea of the advent of traits, there's so many trait offerings, so many different flavors for that hybrid to come in. And then you have the whole process of creating those hybrids is in and of itself. Uh, Just because you can make it doesn't mean it's going to be cost-effective to make it or doesn't mean it's going to be the the best thing. So it seems to me like the corn side, there's a lot of alchemy in how that happens. Right. We don't know what we need until we need it, right? (laughs) So it's how soon do you want it? Yesterday. Uh, (laughs) Right. Kind of so to speak. But it takes a long time to get, you know, the inbreds, you know, with the right traits into the system. And and that's, that's quite an extensive process. And we've got a research and development team you know, that that's in charge of that. And we've got facilities throughout the world, you know, doing that action. So there's, there's a lot of people behind the scenes that are involved in, in making this happen. You know, so when you see a product uh, in the bag that we're selling, it's, there's a huge process that, that goes uh, behind the scenes. 
for that to happen. Talk a little bit, if you would, about that process for folks who may be, you know, unfamiliar with how we get from, because of course at Stein, we're, we're big on the fact that we actually go and create new genetics and that doesn't happen necessarily overnight. So can you give us a little bit of a idea of, of what does that process look like, you know, kind of front to back? That's a good point, David, because if you look at, uh, ran the numbers here a couple years ago, if you look at the seed corn industry, you know, there's over 100 companies competing with us in the United States, you know, directly competing with us. But if you look at the bigger equation, there's only a handful of companies actually developing inbreds in order to make hybrids. And that's the really cool thing about Stein Seed Company is we have an opportunity to sell a product to a grower that they can't access in any other bag. And that's that's really, really neat to be able to have something to, uh, you know, separate yourself from your competitors. You know, there's the old fallacy of, you know, let's let's just, you know, do what our competitors are doing and, you know, say I've got product A, so let's sell it, you know, and, and try to win on price. You can't survive in the long run doing that. So in our case, we're taking the extra step of creating new inbred material, uh, which you have to do if you're actually going to go out and offer products that, that aren't generally available in the, in the marketplace. Yeah, and, you know, that all starts with our corn nursery, you know, that's led up by Kelly and Jason and, and Warren. You know, this year we're going to have over 38 acres in, in one nursery uh, there at Adel, and it's, it's really impressive to see. It's a huge undertaking. There's a lot of labor that, that goes behind that. So those guys have a, a big, big job at hand into developing these products for us. You know, I, I think it's been a while. It's probably been 10 years ago now, but I remember the, the term or, or kind of hearing them talk about that selfing nursery and talking about the fact it takes basically a million dollars an acre uh, to run that. Now, of course, with inflation now, <laughs> I'm sure it's way more than that. But it's once you understand that, it's easy to understand why companies probably don't want or, or can't invest at the level that, that we do. They can't get in the game of creating brand new genetics because it's, a, it's not easy. B, it's not cheap. So it's it's hard to do. Yeah, and I, I like to share with our new ISRs, I like to share some of those numbers, you know, the, the cost behind that. You know, just for one machine to harvest a, a plot in our elite trials is, you know, it's a million-dollar machine. That's, that's not to be taken lightly. And uh, we've got a number of those machines that are doing the work for us. And, yeah, it's an expensive game to play. And as you know, the Stein family doesn't do things halfway. Yeah. Uh, it's either all for it or, or don't do it at all. Yep, absolutely. So the process begins with these selfing nurseries, looking at a lot of different inbred lines. And then uh, I assume then the next step is trying to, because of course, once you have an inbred you like, it's still just an inbred, right? So you still haven't really determined what, if anything, it can be from a commercial perspective. So what's the next step in that process? Well, the, the whole thought is a high-yielding inbred matched with another high-yielding inbred creates a high-yielding hybrid. Not always the case. And, you know, you've got to, we put them in our ISO blocks to create new hybrids. From there, we, you know, we run them through and, and test them and see which ones perform. Uh, some match up, some don't. You know, if you look at the, the raw numbers behind it, many inbreds don't match up with other inbreds. Um, and we know that, but until you actually do the testing, uh, there's no logarithm, there's nothing that you can do at a desk that's going to tell you that. It's just good old-fashioned hard work and and getting out there and, and performing the, the labor that it takes. And that seems like something I think from my experience has been a bit of a separator is, is, you know, I think there's a lot of companies that want to find that shortcut. They want to be able to sort of 
yeah, like you said, have an algorithm or, or, or run some sort of modeling, right, that's going to say, well, we, we can use this to find the very best material. And it would appear that in our program, we say, well, there's so many parts to that. It's very difficult to predict. So at the end of the day, you just have to make as many combinations as you humanly can and then, uh, and then let, let the data sort itself out. So the process we use when we get to hybrids is we get into the elite testing program, right? Talk a little bit about the importance of, of, of the elite program. So we've got, you know, the, the elite trials are basically, we've got them done in four different geographies. We have, you know, we've got the early side, we have early mid, we've got the mid maturity and the full season. And they're, they're scattered throughout the Midwest, right? They're, uh, through our selling territory. And then prior to that, we also have pre-elite trials. That's brand new hybrids that, uh, you know, these are hybrids we just made. Uh, we're testing them, you know, small quantities of these things because it's, it's new material. We just don't have, any, don't have any supply of it, right? So we test those in the pre-elite. Once they pass the pre-elite, if they catch our attention, we advance them into the elite trials. If they don't catch our attention, you know, majority of that stuff just gets put right in the trash. So from there, it goes to the elite trials, and we'll test it for one, two, three, four years, however long it takes, you know, to, to get the confidence in that product, and then we uh, bring it to the market. Also, again, we talk about corn just being inherently more complex, I think, from a breeding standpoint, because I also know, so now you have, you know, inbred A and inbred B, and, you're, and you can work with that and find a combination that works, right, provides the yield you want. But now you have to determine, okay, but that's the hybrid. Now, what do we want? Do we want a conventional hybrid? Do we want a glyphosate hybrid? Do we want above and below ground traits? I mean, what do you want? And it seems like you can't do that until you know first that you have genetics you like. And then you go back to the drawing board and try to figure out how to get those traits in. Is that a fair statement? Correct. And, and a lot of companies will use, you know, something as a trait marker. And, and we're, you know, we're still the old-fashioned. We do it, you know, developing conventional inbreds, you know, once we get a high yield and conventional, then the thing that we like to do is, you know, try to do the trade insertion. That doesn't always work. For years, we, you know, ideally you'd have a hybrid and you'd have it in every single trait combination you could think of. That's, that's not the case. We've got, you know, hybrids over the years that either work really good as just a glyphosate, sometimes work better as a glyphosate than they do with any sort of traits, any other traits associated with it. You know, for years we've identified, you know, our glyphosated hybrids are yielding higher than our uh, Dash 20s or our Vipteras. Um, that's just the nature of the beast. We, we talk about the analogy, you know, you've got two parents that played basketball doesn't necessarily mean you're going to play basketball, right? <laughs> so... Past performance doesn't guarantee future performance. Exactly. <laughs> yes. So when you and the rest of the team are looking at the uh, at, at the data that's coming out of elite tests, for example, I guess I'm curious, what are the things that are pointing to a hybrid that you would think we want to commercially advance? What are the what are the triggers there? What are we looking for besides obviously yield? It's simple as that. Yield. You know, we we have to. We have to provide the highest yielding genetics that we can to our growers. We, we owe them that, right? They're putting faith in us to buy our product. We're going to give them the highest yielding material that we've got. But the elite trials just aren't yield trials. You know, we're testing a lot of these hybrids at different populations. We're determining which, which hybrids perform best at high populations or low populations. And then, you know, the other equation of that is, is lodging. You know, that's one of the reasons we do push those populations on some of these hybrids is to determine what the lodging scores will be. You can have the highest yielding hybrid, but if you can't harvest it, 
you know, look around, there's not many fences with cows <laughs> anymore. So, uh, you know, the goal is to produce a high yielding hybrid with excellent standability. What is the time cycle here from, you know, the point when really first uh, looking at inbred lines to the point when we can actually get something in a, in a bag commercially available? That's a great question. Uh, we've got a facility in South America that we utilize that we can get four generations. You know, we're in central Iowa, Dell, you know, we're getting one generation a year, right? And down there, we're, every 90 days, um, we're, we're getting a new cycle. So if you think of it, you know, it's a minimum 12 to, you know, 15 cycles uh, that you have to go through in order to, you know, by the time you develop that hybrid and get it ready for the bag, it's, you know, it's, it's a good 15 cycles to put it lightly. So at one generation a year, it's 12, 15 years. Anything you do from there, if you can get off-season production some way, shape, or form, just at least shortens the shortens the window a little bit. Yeah, we utilize, you know, obviously our large nursery there at Adel. We've got a facility in Guyana, you know, South America that we talk about, you know, that we're getting four generations a year. We're utilizing locations in, in South America. The, the seed's getting a lot of miles under it before we <laughs> uh, were able to put it you know, into production and, and bring it to the market. So in the time that you've uh, been in the role that you're in now, uh, what are the things that you've seen that you are most excited about in terms of uh, the progression that we've had or, over the last several years as a company with respect to corn breeding and development? I'd say the hottest thing right now is uh, the development and the progress we've made with our short stature corn. It's becoming more accepted. You know, keep in mind, there's 100 companies out there selling corn, right? And there's only a handful of people identifying and, and uh, developing inbreds. So we're competing against a lot of other companies that are, uh, you know, selling the same material. And we're, we're kind of the odd man out uh, when it comes to that. So, you know, now that other companies are starting to identify short stature corn, uh, the benefits to it, not only standability, but just to be able to use your equipment, year, you know, season long. Uh, whether that be for side dressing, applications of fungicide, you know, whatever the case. I mean, there's just so many advantages to it. And it's neat to see that other companies are jumping on that wagon and, and trying to follow suit. Well, and that's a great point. It's interesting because, like you said, we've been talking about this for a very, very long time. Coming at it from the angle of possible of increasing population, but with the shorter stature that comes with that. And for the longest time, we were the only voice in, in, in that conversation. Just this last uh, February, there was a meeting here in Iowa. Warren Stein was on a panel with two other companies. So we had three seed companies talking about short stature, high population corn. And it struck me, I thought to myself, man, this would not have happened five years ago. Uh, it just wasn't even a topic of conversation. So it's exciting to see more voices being added to that discussion. You know, when you hear Harry Stein and, and people refer to him as an innovator. You know, look, look what he's done on the soybean side, you know, from conventional breeding of soybeans to, you know, introduction of, you know, glyphosate tolerant soybeans to enlist soybeans. Uh, it's no surprise. His passion's on the corn just as much as it is on the soybeans. So, you know, we're, we're not going to do the same thing as others do. We think a little bit outside the box. He thinks a lot farther outside the box than, than most of us are able to, <laughs> sure. which is kind of neat. Yeah, I mean, there's just so much to it. Do you find it interesting, you know, that we have, uh, again, working in this sphere, there's there's 
companies out there that say, hey, we're really excited about short stature corn and we have this one product that's in trials right now that we're, you know, really excited to see what the results are. And and meanwhile, you know, over the last 10 years, what have we had? Probably 100 or 115 high pop hybrids that we've commercially released to people. Right. Yeah, yeah, we've, we've done a lot of work with uh, short stature corn, that's for sure. You know, we've learned a lot of lessons. I mean, there's there's a ton of things that we've identified just by, you know, trial and error, getting these products out into the hands of the farmers. You know, you learn things. And the neat thing about this company is that, you know, we're all about communication. You know, the president of the company, Myron, is so accessible to, you know, a, a sales rep or a customer can call Myron directly. I mean, you just don't find that with other companies. And, you know, that's kind of the example that he's led is that, you know, part of us on the management team are all accessible to our sales rep, our growers. Um, I talk to growers several times a week, just answering questions or from the relationships that you've developed over the years. So it's it's really a, you know, it, it's a really a standard that, you know, it, it goes back to the service aspect of it. We're not going to hide behind a desk and a wall and and just kind of let our guys go. We're, we're there to help them out. And that's a great point you bring up because I know that you're really plugged in on a lot of the different meetings they have, both at the divisional level, regional level. But as you just alluded to, I know you also talk directly with a lot of our corn customers. So they have a direct line of communication as well as, you know, Warren Stein also, you know, working with with, with a lot of our customers and our sales reps. And so uh, there's kind of no, you know, no secrets here. All the, the work that's gone into this, uh, we know these products kind of front and back and, and are willing to share what we know, I think makes makes a big difference in in how how we can come to market with these products. And we know the history of them because we made them. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Firsthand. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Looking ahead, you know, to 2024, of course, we're just wrapping up planting for 2023. Looking ahead to 2024, what, what are we looking at for as far as portfolio-wise? Anything that really stands out that you're excited about? Well, we're going to introduce just short of 10 hybrids this year, uh, part of the production plan, which is exciting. You know, if you look at the portfolio that we want to put out, you know, we want about half of our products to be, you know, three years or greater proven, right? Because those have a comfort level with our growers. They like them. They want them again. So we want at least half of our portfolio to be three years old plus. Uh, We have products that still are in high demand, uh, some of the top sellers that have been around five, six years. So, and then the the other portion of that is, is, you know, brand new products, you know, that needs to be in that 15 to 20% uh, range. You always have to be introducing new products to the market. And then, uh, you know, that that second year portfolio or lineup is going to be the difference. Portfolio management is, uh, again, probably as much art as it is science. How do you deal with the case where a grower says, boy, you know, I, I really like that product and, you know, you guys scuttled that. That was my favorite hybrid. Oh, we, we've dealt with that on soybeans for years. Yeah. Uh, that was the biggest thing that we always heard is that, you know, I just started liking this product and it's gone, you know, after three years. And that's just uh, when you've got a breeding program the size of ours, you're, you're going to identify new things every year. And that's, that's kind of the goal, right? Yep. If that wasn't the goal you're still going to be planting 10-year-old hybrids right. and you're still going to be, you know, in 38-inch rows and you're going to be planting at, you know, 22,000 population. You have to evolve. Uh, and that's the whole goal. So you talked about 10 new hybrids coming for 2024. What else are you excited about short-term, long-term future? 
well, we're going to continue on this MX, you know, branding. That's huge. You know, that's kind of the new the new products that are coming out, and they've got a lot of advantages, you know, other than yield. Typically, those are going to be, you know, it's unique germplasm. Uh, this is stuff that you're only going to find in a Stein bag. But with that, it, it takes a lot of education to teach our growers, our sales reps, you know, what does that mean? You know, that means... You know, it doesn't necessarily mean just put some some nitrogen and some, you know, phosphorus and potassium out there and be done. Really, in order to maximize the yield, you need to look at, you know, these hybrids respond to fungicide. And these are all things that we're learning through our product development plots that our agronomy team's doing. So there, there's a lot of learning behind those. These are proven hybrids that we've uh, developed within our, our system. They've been through our elite trials. They've demonstrated high yield, uh, excellent standability. These are also going to demonstrate, uh, you know, shorter stature. You know, these aren't going to be the traditional 130-inch tall hybrids that other companies are, are promoting. You know, we're looking in that, you know, 90-inch range for plant height, but yet not sacrificing uh, ear height. You know, we want that 40 to 45-inch ear height, and, uh, you know, a lot of these products are going to demonstrate that. You know, the, the shorter stature is just, it's remarkable when you see like a storm that we saw a few years ago, the duration that came through here. You know, we had, when growers are calling you and saying, you know, this stuff stood, you know, that that's a good feeling. And that's that's kind of why you do it, right? You know, these products are also going to, you're going to notice they're probably going to flower a little bit. Uh, they're going to silk a little bit sooner than they do flower. And the reason for that is, you know, you get, a plant only produces so much pollen, right? Once it's shed its pollen, it's done. And, and a corn plant will continue to grow silk. So what we want is we want silks to come out one to two days prior to pollination. And things, you know, in a perfect world, you know, you want them to happen at the same time. We don't live in a perfect world. So what we're looking for is those hybrids to silk one to two days prior to the pollen shed, because what happens, you hit a drought, you hit some sort of stress within that plant, which delays silking, then you get your pollen shed, and now you've got a barren plant, which is, uh, I, you know, not ideal uh, by any means. So we try to, we try to get those silks out a couple days sooner than the, than the pollen shed. The other thing is the harvest index. You know, we're getting more grain out of that plant, and that's, you know, less biomass. You know, one of the things with diesel prices the way they are, you know, when guys are having to till two and three times just to get rid of corn residue uh, in the fall, uh, shorter plants, you're going to have less less biomass, easier to, to, to handle the residue management. And then we're noticing that a number of our products are the, the cold emergence, cold tolerance on the MX hybrids uh, seems to get a little bit better emergence, a little bit more uniform emergence uh, than what we've seen in some of the other products out there in the market. Those are all fantastic points. And, and what I like about where we're at in terms of our corn portfolio also is I think for a time I felt like, you know, we were really promoting the high pop, narrow row, short stature thing. And on occasion, you might have a grower who says, well, that Stein's not for me because they're only about high pop and narrow and, and short corn. In reality, we had a lot of other products, but that was the thing that was catching people's attention, right? And now you've got this broad portfolio. Like you said, you've got all that short stature corn. You've got what I would call the higher management products, right, for max return. And then you also have products that are probably more adaptable in their approach and kind of kind of more versatility and, and kind of can go across a wide range of cropping plans. And so you, you kind of recognize you have both, you know, both kind of options for growers. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, we've got one of the things that we do is we put out a population index, what we'd like to see our products planted at. 
And we don't give a hard number because in central Kansas, it's going to be different than what it is in central Illinois, right? So we put a percentage, uh, you know, 90%. We've got a handful of products that we only want planted at 90% of their standard average population uh, for that area. And then we've got products that we're going to tell you 110%. But with that, there's some education that needs to, to take place. It's not just putting more seeds out there and expecting more, right? You've got to manage your nitrogen maybe a little bit differently. Depending on your soil type, you know, if you have a low CC value, you can't put all your nitrogen up front. You have to go ahead and do it, uh, maybe do a side dress application uh, or something like that. Uh, you need to incorporate some sulfur into the mix. You know, we're finding a number of growers that are, are getting excellent response to fungicide applications at different stages of that uh, crop growth. So there's a number of things that, you know, just because it says MX on the bag doesn't mean it's going to be the highest performing hybrid unless you do the things necessary to do that. You know, and I, I tell growers, listen, you know, you farm all these acres, you know, it's just one big test plot. That all it, that's all it is. You got to do things differently or otherwise, how do you advance your operation? If you don't, like I said, you're still planting in wide rows, you're planting at low pops and you're, you know, you're not advancing technology, you're not utilizing technology and uh, you're just going to, you're going to go backwards. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. So, Brian, given all that you've worked on, you, you've really been an asset to our organization helping with our corn portfolio management. I'm just curious, going back through this all, what's been the biggest takeaway you've had from your time as a product manager on the corn side? It's just seeing the development of the products. You know, you, you see them, you walk through the nursery, you get to see these products in the in the early stages, the development stages, and to see them advance through you know, through the various stages through the nursery and see those hybrids actually come to the market. It's kind of neat to see. It's kind of neat to witness, kind of like your kids growing up, right? Mm. And that's kind of how it is. So that's that's kind of the most rewarding thing on that. The other thing is I love to sell out of products. You know, uh, <laughs> people think it's, oh, I, I bet you hate taking the phone calls because you're sold out of this hybrid. No, that means we did it right. That means we, you know, we did something right and uh, that product's in great demand and th there's nothing wrong with that. That's that's a good problem to have. So the more products we can sell out of, the better off. Uh, that, that says that we did, did a good job. That's right. So, it says you did your part. Yeah. <laughs> well, Brian, hey, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for everything you do to help us out on the uh, corn portfolio management and everything you do for the branded business. We appreciate it. Well, thanks, David. It was It was a pleasure. Well, that's our time for today. I'd like to thank our guests and our listeners for joining us for another episode of the Stein Seedcast. We'll be back again soon with more expert interviews and insights about all things Stein. And to never miss an episode, subscribe to the Stein Seedcast wherever podcasts are found. Subscribe to the Stein Seedcast wherever podcasts are found. To learn more about Stein and its elite corn and soybean genetics, visit steinseed.com. Stein has yield.